Uh, go ahead and open up to Romans 3. We'll be there in a minute. Tonight we're still in this semester-long study on the church, and we've covered quite a bit of ground already. If you've been here the whole time, we look first um, at what the Scriptures teach about the importance of the local church in your life, like I mentioned earlier. We talked about the people of the church and the purpose of the church and the design of the church. We spent a couple of weeks talking about the, the worship of the church. Then we switched gears a little bit to, to take a, a tour through some of the history of the church. The history We talked about the history of the church in persecution, the history of the church in power and prosperity, times of those, those kinds of times. Then last week we began looking at the history of the Reformation of the church. And I thought we, I was an idiot and thought we could do it all in one week. So uh, I had actually planned for a totally different topic tonight, but I thought, well, we'll just spend two weeks on the Reformation. So tonight we're coming to the second part of that. And, and just to give you a heads up, again, Brother Al's going to be here next week to talk about the mission of the church. Um, surprise, surprise, that's what he would talk about. And, uh, but tonight we're still in Re- Reformation mode. So I just want to recap a little bit of what we said last week in part one, if you weren't here as well as uh, say a little more about the topic of last week that I didn't say. Because uh, last week was focused first and foremost on how the Reformation was a recovery of the Scriptures. That, that, that was the fundamental thing. When we, yeah, that, that's, that was the bedrock of it all. Um, the foundational principle of the whole Reformation uh, began with this, because without, without that, there's no basis on which to reform anything else in the church. And so the fundamental principle of the Reformation was sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And what do they mean by that? It meant, they meant that scripture alone is our highest authority in all things pertaining to faith and practice. It's our highest authority, and scripture alone is, is sufficient to be that for us. The Catholic Church of that day and still today, certainly, certainly held Scripture and still hold Scripture in high regard. They hold Scripture in high regard, but they had more to their view of authority than the Reformers had. They didn't want to say Scripture alone. Um, and on top of that, even with a high view of Scripture, I don't think that they don't seem to take sufficient account of what Scripture itself says about its own authority. So, for example, most classically, that passage in 2 Timothy 3 um, that says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and he's talking to Paul talking to Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings to which, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So Scripture is sufficient. For all of this, Timothy, he's saying there, Timothy had the Scriptures, which, according to the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul there, was something he could read on his own uh, and, and understand it by himself as he read it. And he could also, it says, he talks earlier or elsewhere, the pastoral epistle, it talks about how his mother and grandmother poured into him that teaching. And so with, in that community of his family and the community of the church, they could hear the Word and on your own and in community. And, and, and the Scriptures, it says in that passage, were sufficient for all these things, to be saved in Christ, through faith in Christ. 
and for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That implies authority and sufficiency and all those different things. And the Roman Catholic Church, still recapping a bit from last week, um, had a much more complicated structure of authority, has one. Uh, you could think of it like a three-legged stool, their, their view of the authority in their church, the spiritual authority, like a three-legged stool. So if you take one away, it messes the whole thing up. They're all of equal importance. The first one is Scripture. Okay? The first leg of, of their view of authority is Scripture. Now, if you've ever seen a, a Catholic Bible, that they don't exactly have the same books we have. <laughs> I mean, they have all of them, but they have some more. They have um, the books of the Apocrypha, and they have um, a couple of other things in the Old Testament. Um, and I don't think on that they're consistent. They like, to, they like to point out how the early church fathers made reference to all these other books. The early church fathers did, but they... If you read the early church fathers carefully, even the early church fathers made careful distinctions between which of these books that I'm quoting are authoritative and universally recognized as so, which of these books are not authoritative but they're helpful to read, which of these books are just outright and plainly heretical. You know, they were clearly making those distinctions, but the Catholic Church no longer necessarily does. That's one of the legs is Scripture. Another leg is tradition with a capital T. Tradition with a capital T. What is tradition in the Catholic Church? Tradition is, uh, they believe that in addition to the written scriptures, there were oral teachings that Jesus passed on to his apostles, which his apostles then passed down to their successors, the bishops in the early church. And, uh, and, it, and it continued to be passed down and grew and ex- was expanded on and, it, and interpreted in all sorts of ways throughout the hierarchy of the church. And those hold equal authority to Scripture. Those are things that, that uh, teachings in that tradition written down that must be believed by Catholics. And it's some weird things. For example, <laughs> teachings about Mary. Um, Catholics believe in the immaculate conception of Mary. You, don't, you ever heard of that? The Immaculate Conception? you have any idea what it is? Now they say um, that, and by the way, that wasn't officially a, a doctrine in the Catholic Church until 1854. But that Mary, not only Jesus was born uh, sinlessly through the, through the Holy Spirit, she wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit did uh, superintend her birth with her mother and father to uh, guard her from original sin and never and, and be guarded from sin throughout her life. You don't ever see that in Scripture. I mean, just, you can't turn to any gospel and find that. But that was a, a, a tradition in, in, the, in, the, in the Catholic Church. And it's bound to be believed. Or the assumption of Mary. What in the world is the assumption of Mary? Well, just as Jesus ascended back into heaven, so did Mary. Ascended back into heaven. That wasn't a doctrine until 1950. See, there's, these, these, there's a whole, tra- this tradition is ever-growing throughout the history of the church. And it runs right alongside Scripture. Scripture says this, tradition says that. And they're bound to believe both. That's tradition. 
The third leg is the magisterium. The magisterium. That's the teaching office of the church, which is responsible for communicating the official interpretation of all of these things. Communicating the official interpretation of Scripture. Communicating the official interpretation of tradition. So you don't interpret it for yourself. That's a difference. That's a difference that came about in the, in the Reformation. The, the Catholic Church not only um, produces this tradition, and, 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 but it stands over the Bible to say this is what this means. This is what this means. Officially so. Right? Martin Luther strongly opposed this conception, this three-legged stool kind of conception of authority in the church with scripture, tradition, magisterium, all holding sort of equal authority over the lives of the faithful. He, he didn't see that at all. He didn't find it at all in scripture, uh, which he believed was the only authority inspired by God. So, for example, when he was on trial in 1521, in Worms, the Diet of Worms, which you see it written looks like Diet of Worms. Um, it's Diet of Worms. He was standing. He was standing trial before representatives of the, of the Pope himself, and they were commanding him to recant upon penalty of death to recant all the things he had been teaching. And he famously replied to them that day. He said, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, or by manifest reasoning, I stand convinced by the Scriptures uh, to which I've appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's Word. I cannot and I will not recant anything. So that's sola scriptura. That's, that's the authority that came down to us from the um, Reformation. That was the beginning cry. Not that Scripture is the only authority that we have for anything, but it's the highest authority that we have for anything. Scripture always has the final word. It settles the disputes. Well, like I said, once they, I said this last week, once they recovered that, once they recovered that this is our authority, our ultimate authority for faith and practice, it was only a matter of time um, before, they, uh, the, before they recovered the gospel, especially as they translated it into the ordinary languages of the people. Martin Luther did it in Germany. Tyndale did it in, in England. Others did it in France. Uh, you know, when they could read it in their own language, it was, it was only a matter of time. And the Reformation spread like wildfire across, across Europe for a number of reasons. We'll talk about one of the main topics will, will be the topic for tonight, but just based on what we've already said, one of the, one of the reasons it spread like wildfire fire was, was the plainness of their teaching. Uh, when all that the people had ever known was the Bible in Latin. They couldn't read Latin. And all they had ever, the Mass, the Catholic Mass was all spoken in Latin. They didn't have any idea what was said at church. Couldn't read the Bible, not a word of it in the Bible. They were 
They were in, totally in the dark. Now, now, when the Reformation happened, not only could they find the Bible in their own language, but when they heard these reformers preach, it was, it was, it was spoken in their, in, their, in their heart language. And they could understand it. And then when they heard them speak, it was, a, it was a gospel that they had never heard before. It wasn't just foreign to what they had ever heard. It was contrary to what they had heard. The gospel that they, they read in the Scriptures for the first time and heard preached for the first time was actually gospel. It was actually good news compared to what they had been taught. So tonight, I want to think as best we can through, and this is a huge topic, so please understand we're hitting high spots. I want to think through what, what was so different about the gospel that the Reformers preached. What was so different about it? Versus the understanding of salvation taught and still taught now in the Catholic Church. I hope, you know, I hope if you know uh, or, you, or you have friends who grew up in a Catholic church, or maybe you, in fact, grew up in a Catholic church or family, I hope you'll hear what I say tonight, not as a, a, a bash all things Catholic. I don't mean it that way. Um, but honestly, as a sincere concern for the way of salvation taught in Scripture. And, and that, that you, if, if you know somebody, if you're not Catholic, you know somebody who uh, have friends uh, who grew up Catholic, you, you might have a better understanding of how to talk about it when it comes up. Or, um, or if you grew up Catholic, you might understand it better yourself. Because let me, let me be clear on this. Protestant and, Protestants and Catholics don't disagree on everything. We don't disagree on everything. There's a, there are enormous things that we're in tremendous agreement on. They're, the way that what they believe and what they write about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, we t- total agreement on the person of Jesus Christ, total agreement on the person of the Holy Spirit, total agreement. What they believe about man, maybe not sin, but man, created the image of God, total agreement. And out of that, there's a host of moral issues, that, like the, 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 the sanctity of human life and things like that, we're total agreement with. Those are huge things, too. So we have a shared understanding, Protestants and Catholics, of who God is. The question, though, is how do we come to him? And how are we saved by him? That's where the paths split. So let's begin the rest of our time tonight. We'll, we'll begin it with scripture. It's the one we read last week. We'll read it again tonight. And toward the end of our time, we'll come back and make reference to it. But we'll start with God's word and then come back to it at the end. Romans chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 19 and read through verse 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are justified, that's past tense, by His grace as a gift. Let those words melt deep in your bones. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. I need to pause right there and and be clear if your Bible says like mine does, translates it that way, propitiation. Some translations say atoning sacrifice, some say other things, but propitiation means to turn someone's wrath away. The the wrath was aimed at you, you have removed their wrath. That's, and so Jesus, was, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to turn away the wrath of God from our sins, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know I'm going to point this out too, just real quick. Because I don't know if we'll have time. i got a lot to say. and If I don't have time to come around the end, I, I want to say it now. Notice in that passage, verse 26 at the very end, that what Paul says there assumes that there might be a question about the justice of God in justifying people. Do you see that? so that he might be just and the justifier. That he's saying God did it in such a way that he could be just in justifying people. Implying that, I just want to say this, the, the Catholic understanding of justification tries to make it to where it makes total sense that God would just somebody, ju- justify somebody. When the scriptures say it's almost scandalous that God would justify anyone. Okay, that's just the posture of the New Testament, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. It it is uh, our authority. It is what what Luther said. Unless we are convinced by your word, um, our consciences are held captive to it. Pray that's the case. So... Help us to think clearly through these issues tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do it um, amiably and helpfully. Give us clarity of thought. Help us to sift through what we believe and come to a greater understanding and conviction of that which we believe. We would be better prepared to be witnesses for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, like I mentioned earlier, I want to do two things tonight. I debated on how I wanted to do this. And the more I thought about it, I thought I want to say more than just this is, what the, go- this is the gospel that the reformers taught. Because I feel like even if you don't remember it, you've probably heard that a thousand times. And when you, you'll hear it again tonight. We're going to talk about the gospel that the reformers preached. We'll do that for sure, but I felt like we needed more than that. What I, what I don't think most of us are clear on at all is, what does the Catholic Church teach? 
I feel like a lot of us have Catholic friends or we meet people on campus who go to the Catholic church and we don't, we say something where they're like, yeah, I believe that. And you, oh, well. And it's because in a lot of ways they, in, in a lot of ways they have the same vocabulary. It's just a different dictionary. You know? So we need to, we need to understand what it is we're saying and, and, and what it is we each believe. What does the Catholic Church teach? How does the Catholic Church say, teach that a person is saved from his or her sins and inherits eternal life with Christ? How? So that's what I, what I want to do first is lay out in broad strokes the Catholic teaching of salvation, which I don't have time to say everything, but which I want to paint, I want to paint as honestly and fairly as I can. And lest anyone think I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, uh, I, or that I'm making anything up or, Take, I don't know. Most of what I'm going to tell you comes straight out of the Catholic Catechism. And I'm going to show, I'll put it on the screen for you. So you can see it in their, in their own writing, what it is they believe. Okay? Um, no, and I know that there have been some, some substantial changes in Catholic teaching. And you, this is going to be right over your head, I don't know. But I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, somebody here is going, well... Um, I know that there have been substantial changes in Catholic doctrine post-Vatican II in the 1960s, that a lot of the teaching in the Catholic Church is not exactly the same as it was in Luther's day, right? I know, but there is a substructure that's still there that didn't change, okay? With that in mind, I do believe that um, the Reformation gospel of salvation will be clearer and hopefully will be seen as the good news that it is. So that being said, let's dive into the issue and think first about the Catholic teaching of salvation. I'm just going to lay it out, like I said, in broad strokes, what the Catholic churches claims to teach in their own catechism. And if anything isn't clear, you can ask me later. We'll talk. How does a person, according to Catholic teaching, obtain eternal life? First, um, the Catholic church believes and teaches that we are all born in Adam and born with original sin which in their view means we bear the consequences of Adam's sin and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. They, they believe there's, apart from God's gracious initiative, we can't do anything to save ourselves. <laughs> so what they, if you ask them, what has God done to save you? He came in Jesus Christ and he died on the cross for our sins as a sinless sacrifice. That's, that's true true catholic teaching i can't save myself i'm born in sin adam's sin is on me what did god do for me to be saved he came in christ jesus lived a sinless life died on the cross for your sins as a sinless sacrifice right that's good so far how do i receive that for myself how do i receive what jesus has done for me for myself how do i how do i make that my own that's the question that's the question because their answer then is through the church specifically through the sacraments through the sacraments that the church administers to you through the sacraments that the church administers to you there are seven sacraments of the catholic church here they are 
baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, sometimes called last rites, holy orders, matrimony. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. According to their teaching, the Christian life sort of begins with those first three. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. They call those the sacraments of, of Christian initiation. And the catechism says that these lay the foundation of the Christian life, those first three. And it begins with baptism as an infant baby. <laughs> In the sacrament of baptism... The Catholic Church teaches that the, the person baptized, the baby, is cleansed from original sin. Cleansed from original sin. And God infuses grace into that baby to regenerate it. Born again. Born anew. That born, the Catechism literally says we are born anew by baptism. It's irrespective of the faith of the person being baptized. In fact, the catechism actually states the church's faith precedes the faith of the believer who is invited to adhere to it. When the church celebrates the sacraments, the, the, she, the church, confesses the faith received from the apostles. It's not your confession, it's the church's. And it's not even that that begins the regenerating, justifying We'll be careful to define in a minute what justifying means. The, this justifying work in the infant being baptized. Because the Catholic Church holds to an understanding of these sacraments that in Latin is ex opere operato. You've heard that phrase? Ex opere operato? It means literally out of the work, it works. It means the action, the mere action does the work. Ex opere operato. It's true of all the sacraments. The only question is, how, the, if the sacrament does its work of grace, now how will I cooperate with that grace that's been given to me? That's the, that's the setup. Out of the, out of the mere action of the, of the sacrament, grace is infused into me. Now how will I, in my freedom, cooperate with that grace to move on to the next stage? Here's how baptism is described in their catechism. The meaning in this ex opere operato, the meaning and grace of the sacrament of baptism are clearly seen in the rites of its celebration. By following the gestures and words, by following the gestures and the words of this celebration with attentive participation, the faithful are initiated into the riches of this sacrament that this sacrament signifies and actually brings about in each newly baptized person. So that baptism actually does something to you. When the, when the priest follows certain gestures and says the proper words, it works. And it does something to you. It regenerates you. Grace is infused into the soul of this infant, which begins the process of justification, which includes, includes sanctification. All right, I'm using big, big words. Does everybody know what justification and sanctification is in our normal Protestant teaching? I just want to make sure we're clear. Justification is 
is where we are declared to be right with God, and then sanctification is the process that we go through the rest of our lives to be, to be conformed into the image of Christ and to be made holy in practice. Catholics subsume sanctification into justification. Okay? So justification is not just a declaration over you. Justification, in their view, means it's the, it's the kicking off of the process of you actually being made holy. Okay? And that begins the moment of baptism. The catechism says further, through baptism we are freed from sin. Reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water and in the word. Again, note here they're teaching that justification begins with baptism and what justification is in their view. Here's what they say about justification. Justification is not only the remission of sins, it's also the, the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. This is going to be important as we move along. Get it. Justification is not just some, something God says about you. It's a reality about you. How just and righteous are you in practice? It's a process that, that makes us righteous. And here's what they say. Justification is conferred in baptism. It's, oh, it's the sacrament of faith. It's not, again, it's not your, an infant can't express faith. An infant has no idea what's going on unless you've seen one of those Eastern Orthodox things where they turn the baby aside and dunk its head three times. You've seen that? You ought to YouTube that. It's wild. The baby comes up like... <laughs> baby doesn't know what's happening. Baby is not, baby's not expressing faith. So if, if they say we're justified by faith, well, at baptism, no baby's believing. It's the church's faith. And it conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of mercy. Okay, that's, that's what happens at baptism. On down the stream of life, that is strengthened in us by the, the later sacrament, confirmation. Which we don't have a lot of time to explain, we're just going to keep moving. Uh, confirmation, the catechism simply says, it, it perfects the baptismal grace. It strengthens that justifying grace it's infusing more grace into us to become a more moral godly just person if you cooperate with that grace given to you all right god gives you grace do you cooperate with it or do you not the final sacrament of the of those first three the christian initiation in the catholic church is the, the sacrament of the eucharist or communion or the lord's supper Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharistain, which means to give thanks. The importance of the sacrament of the Eucharist is hard to overstate in Catholic teaching. The Catholic view of what happens in the Lord's Supper is called transubstantiation. You hearing that? Transubstantiation. Meaning, the bread and the wine changes substances. It still has all the physical properties of bread and wine. But in substance, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. I mean, I don't know if you just heard what I said. But I did just say that. In, in, yeah. 
It still has all the physical properties of bread and wine, but what you're putting in your mouth and what you're drinking is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Here's how they say it. At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and the wine. That, by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit, again, it's the gestures and the words, ex opere operato, become Christ's body and blood. The signs of bread and wine become, in a way surpassing understanding, the body and the blood of Christ. And, and so through the physical elements that you eat and drink, you're receiving grace of his literal sacrifice in that meal. The most astounding statement about this in, in the catechism is this. The sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Y'all. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. And now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered him on, himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since the divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. There's a reason I taught you that word. Just think about what it is. A sacrifice is going to happen. And they don't call it the communion table. What do they call it? The altar. The altar. And it says when... when and it's one and the same sacrifice with the cross itself. And so, when this happens, that's why they say it is truly propitiatory. This, not, what, not, just, not merely your faith in what Jesus did then, but what you are doing right now by eating and drinking, that is turning God's wrath away. Think about that. This, this is truly, when it says this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, it's not talking about this sacrifice 2,000 years ago, this sacrifice that you just saw up in the front of the room. That's why excommunication is such a big deal in the Catholic Church. I mean, it's a big deal in any church, come on. But I mean, really in the Catholic Church, because what are they doing when they bar when they excommunicate somebody and they bar them from coming to that table, they are barring them from any hope of salvation. You got to come to this table. This is how you this action is how you receive the 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 sacrifice of Christ. If I excommunicate you, I'm barring you from any hope of salvation. You can no longer come take this Eucharist. This is how you receive that sacrifice, and you can no longer receive it. Okay, let's just say that's never happened to you. Through baptism as an infant, then confirmation, and now you're, you're, you've taken your first Eucharist, and now you're taking Eucharist. According to the Catholic Church, you're now in a state of grace. You're in a state of grace. And we can stay there if we cooperate. God gives grace. Are we going to cooperate with it? Keep from sinning, do good works, specifically keep the sacraments. God's grace is always presented, yes, 
we can't do it apart from God's grace. It's the initiative, but will we cooperate with it? Here's what Catechism says. The divine initiative in the work of grace precedes and elicits the free response of man. Grace responds to the deepest yearnings of human freedom, calls freedom to cooperate with it, and perfects freedom. So it's up to us to cooperate with the grace that God has given to us. Here's the problem, though. We keep sinning. I mean, just, you, just try to cooperate. If you, have the, if you ever have the faintest thought that I could probably do that pretty well, you've just sinned. And there are, in their view, sin is categorized in two senses. And then, and then, and then there are um, two levels of consequences. Two, two kinds of sin, two levels of consequences. As far as sin goes... The first kind of sin is venial sins. Venial sins. It's real. You really did something you shouldn't have done, but it's, it's not all that serious than the other kind of sin. Venial sins. The other kind of sin is mortal or grave sins. Which that kind of sin kills the justifying grace in your soul essentially you just lost your salvation you lost hope of attaining eternal life and then those two sins have they won't be on the screen just listen those two kinds of sins have two different kinds of consequences one kind of consequence are temporal punishments temporal punishments means here and now and well and after temporal punishments for venial sins and other sins okay the other is eternal punishment for mortal sins and grave sins temporal punishments for for venial sins eternal punishment for mortal sins what do you do then what do you what do you do what do you do when you do that you're gonna do that this is the purpose of the sacrament of penance. Penance. What is penance? Penance revol- it involves three parts. So if you're taking notes, here they are. One, make an act of contrition. Make an act of contrition. Be contrite. That's part one of penance. Make an act of contrition. Two, Make confession to a priest. Make confession to a priest. And three, perform works of satisfaction. Perform works of satisfaction. Through penance... You can restore that justifying grace if you've committed a mortal sin. You can, you can uh, make yourself capable again of eternal life. I mean, if you've committed a mortal, mortal sins are like murder, adultery, idolatry. I mean, how do you, how do you, you know? So you can, when you do that, when you commit that sin, you've killed that justifying grace, but through penance... You can restore that justifying grace and, and get back on the path of possible eternal life. 
but you will still retain the temporal punishments. All right? You can get rid of the eternal punishment, but you're, you're still on hook for the temporal punishment associated with it. In this life, in, in, in this life, those temporal punishments can be chipped away at through, um, uh, you know, continuing to the sacraments. If you partake of any of the other sacraments, you get married, matrimony, that's a sacrament. Or if you become a priest, holy orders, that's a sacrament. Uh, when you're dying, anointing the sick, that's a sacrament. You can chip away. The, o- obedience to those sacraments can chip away at the temporal punishments that you've accumulated in your life through all your sins. Or through indulgences, yes, they still do that. It's in the catechism. You can obtain an indulgence if it's paying money or whatever it is they ask you to do. You can, you can buy an indulgence or obtain an indulgence for your own sins or for your dead grandma who's in purgatory. And now any of the temporal, any of the temporal punishments that you don't fully chip away off and, or erase completely in this life, that's why purgatory's there. When you die, you don't go straight to heaven. You go to purgatory, purgatory, where, they, where you are purged from all your remaining temporal punishments coming. The only way that I know of that you can bypass all of that and go straight to be with Christ is through in this life doing a work of, fancy word, super arrogation. A work of, it's like a super work. Like martyrdom. Dying a martyr's death. So there you go. It is this that drove Luther insane. At this point, he's thinking about penance. He's thinking... How do you know if you've been contrite enough? I think I've performed. And the Catholic Church even has levels of contrition. Perfect contrition, imperfect contrition. Oh my goodness. How do I know if I've been contrite enough? How do I know if I've done enough works of satisfaction? How do you know you've confessed all the sins you need to confess? What if you forgot one? The Catechism says, the one who desires to obtain reconciliation with God and with the church must confess to a priest all the unconfessed grave sins he remembers after having carefully examined his conscience. The confession of venial faults, without being necessary in itself, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the church. Is it any wonder Luther never had any peace? He drove himself crazy trying to confess every known sin that he ever said or thought or did. Trying to, trying to uh, display enough contrition for it. Even if, even if he could fool a priest, God sees. He beat his body, starved his body. In the, all this to say, in the Catholic Church, there is no assurance of salvation. If I could boil down the good news of the gospel according to the Reformation, it is in one word, assurance. 
in Catholic Church, you, no. Here's what the Council of Trent said. This was in Luther's day. The Catholic Church, I don't, I don't have it on the screen, I wish I did. He said, but they were, the, this is at the end of the Council of Trent, and they're pronouncing anathema, like curses on all the false, false statements. And it says, if anyone shall say that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, let him be anathema. If you dare say you think you will persevere to the end, curse be on you. You can never know if you've cooperated enough with his grace. You may hope, but never with absolute confidence. Here's what Luther said about this period of his life. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God, the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said as if, Indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments. I mean, I'm already, a, I'm already an original sinner, and then I got the Ten Commandments weighing down on me without having God add pain to the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with His righteousness and wrath. Thus I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. That's the fruit of the Catholic teaching on how a person is saved. We can never know if we're justified now. Justifying grace is given to us as an infant, as a, as a baby in baptism. But, it's, but what did, how did they define justification? As infusing grace that begins a process of making you, making you just. Not declaring you to be anything, making you something. And how long will that take? More of that grace is given along the way. But when they talk about justification, they're not talking about something that's true now, but something that may happen off in the future, off in the eternal future. And I won't get there until I have been conformed to Christ in every way. And how, I, how can I be sure that I won't just walk away someday and, and quit cooperating with grace? He won't justify me until I'm actually just. Until I'm actually righteous. What did I say about the Romans passage? It should, Paul says, God did it in such a way that he could be just and justify. It almost seems scandalous. Because he says, down in, look in chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. God doesn't justify only those who have Cooperating with His grace made themselves just. God justifies the ungodly, according to Romans 4, 5. That's what is scandalous. If God justifies and says, you're righteous, somebody who's not righteous, that is a scandal. If any human judge did that, they would be thrown off the bench. So how can God be just and the justifier, one who justifies ungodly people? 
by sending his son in their place to be in their stead, who is righteous, who did take their punishment, and they are in him. So he is declaring them righteous in him. Not on their own, but in him. That's how. Luther, though, couldn't get away from what Paul said in places like this. And in Romans 1, when he talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, here's what, here's what Luther said. Nevertheless, I, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. I would not let it go. Most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context, marvel of all marvels, of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Hmm. There I began to uh, understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely uh, the passive righteousness which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. And that began in earnest the recovery of the biblical gospel, the Reformation gospel of salvation. We'll land the plane in just a minute. Sorry, guys. If it could be summarized, it would be sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. They discovered the Bible to teach clearly that we are saved by grace alone not grace that's not dependent on our cooperation with it the grace of god is given to us freely not not just unmerited not as if we didn't not not we say that grace is god's unmerited favor that actually speaks too highly of ourselves it's not just i didn't merit it i demerited it And our passage says here in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Scripture says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're spiritually unable to do good on our own. Even when the Scriptures tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it comes right behind it saying, because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Both to will and to work. God is willing in you and He's working in you. Think about those words. God, because God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, carried out, out to its consequence, the, the more I work hard at my own sanctification, the more I work hard at my holiness, all that proves all the more is that he's working in me. Not that I'm cooperating, just that he's really at work in me. And if, if the more I will and will and will and decide and decide and decide, it just proves that he's willing in me. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end and everything in between. 
God begins the good work in us, according to Philippians 1.6, and He's the one that carries it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's all of grace, grace alone. But the biggest aspect of the Reformation gospel was their understanding of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. John Calvin called this doctrine, justification by faith alone, he called it the main hinge upon which religion turns. The main hinge upon which religion turns. And Luther called it the article by which the church stands or falls. Why? Because it's the only hope a sinner has before God. The reformers taught that full justification, fully, fully just and righteous in God's sight, is not something that awaits for me in the future, possibly. As I try to cooperate with God's grace in this life, with those, these sacraments and these good works and this contrition and that confession, maybe one day, no. It's a gift that I can receive in full right now. Not because of my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Remember, remember all those, all those uh, times in the catechism and what I've been saying and baptism and others that they believe that grace is being infused in you like it's a substance? No. I mean, the, the reformer said, no, it's not a substance it's being infused in me like a gas to change me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a favor. It's a, it's a disposition of God toward me that is now reckoned to me. It either is or it's not. It's not partial. He's either, I'm either in his favor or I'm not. Not halfway there. I'm not partially there. Not incrementally there. It's a gift I can receive now. It's imputed to me. Not infused, imputed. Credited to my account. Not because God just decides to, but because Christ earned it. They taught that justification is not the process of God making me righteous. It's a declaration. It's a pronouncement. It's a verdict. Righteous in my sight. Forgiven and righteous. Not because I'm righteous, but because Jesus is righteous. And by faith, his righteousness is imputed to me. Not grace infused in me, so hopefully I can be righteous enough for God to accept me. Look at what our text says next in verses 24 and 25. And are justified by his grace. Justified. It doesn't seem partial. It just is. Justified. By his grace, as a gift, what we just said. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We'll just stop right there. Here's what Calvin said about that passage. The meaning is that since there remains nothing for men as to themselves but to perish, being smitten by the just judgment of God, they, they are to be justified freely through his mercy. For Christ comes to the aid of, of this misery and communicates himself to believers so that they find in him alone all those things which they are wanting. The reformers in that day were 
castigated, vehemently um, uh, accused of preaching this free grace in Christ and free justification in Christ in full by faith alone. Just, it's just a gift without any need of good works. The Council of Trent again said that if anyone says that they're saved and justified by faith alone apart from good works, let him be anathema. But Luther and Calvin and all the other reformers knew that good works, Scripture talks a lot about good works. But they, they knew, the Scripture says, and they taught that good works are the fruit of our justification in Christ, not the root of it. See? It's not the root that gives rise to my justification. It's the fruit that comes out of my justification. They're the consequence, not the cause. Luther, so the way he said it, he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with good works. And you can see how this biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone and, and that you know that you're justified in His sight now, now in full, forevermore, and that you have peace with God now through faith in Christ, apart from any good works of your own, apart from any sins of your own. You can see how that was such a comforting doctrine. For the first time in their lives, they were told, you can know. You can be sure. They had never been taught anything like this. Tim Chester and Mike Reeves wrote a book called Why the Reformation Still Matters. And here's what they said about the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith. It is a deeply personal doctrine. Every time I sin, I create a reason to doubt my acceptance by God. And I question my future with God. But day after day, the doctrine of justification speaks peace to my soul. In Christ alone simply means when you put your faith in Christ, Christ becomes yours. You don't need the mediation of a priest. You don't need the, or a bishop or a, anyone else in the church between you and Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray.